Welcome to Beth Takoon and our ongoing study of the Torah portions in the light of the calendar, which is our key for unlocking God's spiritual seasons in the year. This week we are in Parsha Emor, Leviticus 21 to 24. God's spiritual curriculum in the year is called salvation. We go through the whole process of salvation every year, from death and rebirth at Passover to being educated in the word at Shavuot, to receiving the word on our hearts at the time of the fall Moedim, to putting flesh and bones on our salvation in the winter. We find ourselves now in the counting of the Omer, the seven weeks that connect Passover to Shavuot. Groundwork is being laid now for a new work in us that's coming up um, on that 50th day of the Omer, which is Pentecost or Shavuot. Before we jump into Parsha Emor, let's quickly review the recent portions through the portion titles. In the week of unleavened bread, you know, back at Passover time, we read Parsha Shemini. Shemini means eight, and we talked at that time about rising above the natural cycle. The natural cycle is defined by the number seven, as in like seven days of a week. And eight is one beyond the natural. Passover is a time when God is inspiring us and lifting us to a new level, a new stage of transcending the natural order. In the double portion of Tazria Metzora, we looked at how the beginning of healing and new growth is first seeing our inner impurity. By the new light of a higher level, right, Shemini, higher level, and by the new light of that higher level, we experience life a bit differently. Suddenly, what seemed normal and acceptable now reveals a taint of darkness we didn't see before. Tazria means when she sows, when she gives birth, when she sows seed, which is the idea of the beginning of growth, right? And Metzora means a person who is afflicted with Zarat, a disease in which an inner impurity is reflected onto the skin. So again, the beginning of growth, Tazria, is seeing our inner impurity, Metzora. Well, in the next portion, another double portion, we looked at the true answer to the plight of the Metzora. Akare Mot means after the death. And we can think of the dead person as the Metzora, separated from the community. The Metzora is really all of us to some degree. In Akare Mot, we found the answer for our inner impurity rests in the work of Yeshua, reflected in the Yom Kippur service, right? That's where we read about the Yom Kippur service. And the presentation of Yeshua's blood there at that time. Kedoshim, right? That's a double portion named Akaremot Kedoshim. Kedoshim means holy ones. In Kedoshim, we began to see a picture of the normal life that God is putting before us like a mirror. The holy life of love for God and our neighbor for which we are designed, right? All of this is laying the groundwork for us as we're approaching Shavuot. So this review leads us to Parsha Emor. Emor means say, and is taken from the first verse. And the Lord said to Moses, say to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, 
No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. This is addressed to the priests, and it's saying, don't make yourselves unclean for the dead, except for close relatives. So this construction using say twice is unusual. Say to the priests and say to them, blah, blah, blah. That's unusual. And we'll talk more about that later. But first, just to continue with the summary here, MR has two big topics and a few smaller topics mixed in. The two main ideas are, one, the laws of holiness for the priests, and two, the Moedim, God's appointed times in Leviticus 23. So regarding the holy status of priests, they're not to come into contact with a dead body, except for a member of their immediate family. They must not degrade their bodies in, in ways that, you know, cultic rites of the time did, for example. Um, no tattoos, by the way. There are rules for who they may marry, and only priests without a major blemish or disfigurement can bring sacrifices. Now, they could still be priests, but they just couldn't bring sacrifices if they had a disfigurement of some kind. The priests are also instructed here regarding animals they can accept and can't accept um, as offerings to God from the people. In chapter 23 is a listing, as I said, of God's appointed times, or we might say holidays. God calls them my Moedim. He begins by reiterating the Shabbat, which is a weekly appointed time, and then he describes seven annual appointed times, so within the year. The text includes some of the sacrifices that are part of sanctifying these special days, setting them apart and making them holy. And in the last chapter of the portion, we have commandments regarding the oil for the menorah and the 12 loaves of bread that are to be replaced weekly on the Shabbat in the holy place on the golden table. At the end of the chapter, we read the tragic story of the man who blasphemes God's name and is put to death. He's stoned. So before we work Amor into the flow of the calendar, let's notice something about this whole second half of Leviticus, or Vayikra, the book of Vayikra. It's particularly focused on a single word, holy, or holiness. What we're seeing in the book of Vayikra is the climbing of a mountain, a holiness mountain. In one sense, the whole of the Torah is a spiraling upward, right? From the beginning till Revelation, we're just, we're going up and up and up. Uh, but Vayikra is special in particular, and it means, Vayikra means, and he called. It's like God is calling to us, saying, climb up here, I'll help you. This word holy, kadosh, starts to be mentioned so frequently in Vayikra that a whole section of the second half, most of the second half, has come to be known as the holiness code. The last chapter of the book, in particular, has the word kadosh 12 times, just in that one chapter. And near the middle of these holiness code chapters, we have a whole portion named Kedoshim, which means holy ones. So why are we climbing this mountain 
through the Torah portions before we get to Sinai in the calendar and before we get to Shavuot. Right? That's when you're supposed to climb the mountain, right? Is when you get to the mountain. Well, why are we doing that beforehand? Well, in the end, this is God saying, this is who you are. Do you believe it? This is who you are. Do you believe that I can help you to get there? This is who you are. Are you living up to it fully? This is who you are. Do you want it? God is holding up a mirror to us before we get to Mount Sinai, and he's saying, get ready. Search through these portions and see where you fall short. Don't look at only the letter of these laws, but look at the spirit of them too, like Yeshua did, right? Yeshua said, you have, the ancients were told, you've heard the ancients were told such and such, but I say such and such. He's going to the spirit of it. And so God's inviting us to dig into the spirit of these many, many laws in Leviticus. And he's saying, lean in, examine, compare to yourself, compare to what you see in yourself, and let your expectations grow. Let your desire for holiness grow. Right? He's saying, my level of holiness that you can see in the picture of Yom Kippur, which he gives us near the beginning of this whole section of Scripture, shows us this level of holiness that we have to use in approaching him, his holiness, that requires a holy approach to him in Yom Kippur. And he's saying, look into all that. How are you matching up to that? And he's also saying, do the work of anticipation for what I'm about to do at Shavuot. So seeing this pages long description of holiness both helps us to see better where we're falling short and it also helps us to see the goal. It inspires us. It's a chance for us to say, I can do better in this area, right? We've got some new light that's helping us to see that. And we can tell the Lord at this time, I'm trusting you for salvation in this area or that area, right? It's a mirror and it helps us to prepare. And so along with this work of seeing ourselves, seeing the darkness that remains, we can also be doing the work now of allowing our anticipation to grow as Shavuot approaches. Counting the Omer obviously helps us in this work of anticipation. How much more pleasing must it be to God when we are eagerly awaiting the next step in faith rather than just stumbling through a moed with little preparation, you know, inwardly or outwardly, We don't come to a meeting with God unprepared. Part of being prepared is that we do the faith work and the inner vision work and the anticipation work that helps to prepare our hearts and minds for the meeting to come. So let me just make a practical suggestion here that we add to our daily prayers just a minute or two to express our desire to be holy and a commitment to holiness And also, let God know that we are looking forward to the next Moed, even as we do whatever we can now to change. You know, we're not just saying, oh, change me then. We're doing what we can now. But but we're also saying we're looking forward to to this big day coming up. So let's um, turn our attention back to Parsha Emor now. 
and think about how it fits into this larger picture of the overall flow of the calendar. The title Emor, which again means say, is focusing us on the idea of communication. God requires holy vessels to communicate his word through. The idea of having a clean vessel for communicating the word is not only an important part of the description of the holy life, it's central, right? Near the middle. We're finding this portion near the middle. It's about communication. And so if the title is pointing us toward clean vessels for communication, we need to think about how the two main topics of the portion fit into that idea. Again, the two main topics are, one, the holiness of the priesthood, and two, the moedim, God's appointed times. What do those have to do with communication, um, for example? But before we do that connecting of these topics to the title, let's talk about why we might be coming to a portion focused on communication here, near the middle of this holiness code section of Scripture, right after the middle portion called Kedoshim. Speech, talking, or the word, this is a middle territory between the spiritual and the physical, the invisible and the visible. We often find the word at the center of a movement from the spiritual to the physical, the movement of bringing heaven down to earth. Thought is invisible, right? It goes on up here. Although I saw a scary news story the other day about how they're reading thoughts through the MRI. Terrible, if you ask me. (laughs) You can't um, see a thought without sticking your body in an MRI machine. And um, you can't hold a thought in your hand. On the other hand, action and physical stuff, those are concrete. We can see them and we can feel them. But what is speech? Speech is the temporary disturbance of the air. It's waves in the invisible air. Speech starts as a thought, and by means of the voice box, right, the thought becomes waves in the air that hit your eardrum. The waves are moving fast. They're about 750 miles per hour. They last just a moment and then vanish as if they never existed. Speech exists in a middle place between thought and action, which is why we often hear the rabbis talk about the progression of thought, speech, and action. They place speech in the middle. First we have a thought, then we put that thought into words, even if we're doing that internally up here, and then we act on those words. So this is why our speech begins in the neck, right? By the way, so our voice box is located here in the neck. Why did God choose to place the origin of our speech in our neck? Because the neck is a middle zone, right? It's a middle zone between the upper world of the head and the lower world of the lower body, right? This middle area of the body is where this middle region of the word is formed, where it starts anyway. So since the words words come in the middle of this whole process, there's a lot of potential there for the process to be derailed or tainted by words that don't accurately represent the thoughts. 
So what does the priesthood have to do with this middle ground and with speech specifically? Well, the priests also stand in the middle between God and mankind. They take messages and gifts from God to man, and they take messages and gifts from man to God. They have the responsibility of keeping and guarding the word and delivering and teaching the word. This is very literal, right? They're very careful with how they copy the Torah, for example. So this is why we're seeing such an emphasis on the holiness of the priests here. The priests have to accurately reflect the speaker behind them, particularly when it comes to how God is represented to the people. The priesthood goes up and down the ladder that connects heaven and earth. Their principal domain is the temple or tabernacle, which is said to be the greatest connecting point of heaven and earth. The priests are the physical embodiment of the word whose lives are to be one with the message they carry. And as messengers of the word, they are held to a higher standard. We see here in our portion that they have a higher standard regarding such things as, again, contact with the dead, their appearance, marriage, and the physical perfection for the priests who bring sacrifices. And how do the Moedim fit into this middle area of speech and communication and even teaching? Remember, we're talking about the title of this portion, which is Amor, and it means to say. We've just seen that the priests need to be holy because of their critical role as a mouthpiece transferring the word. They must be clean. But why do we have the, Torah, the Torah's most comprehensive list of commandments tied to the calendar here in this portion? Well, the answer I'm going to give here is that the work of the priesthood is intimately tied to the Moedim. We can almost say that other than the Torah itself, God's special days are the greatest tools the priests have for doing the connecting work God has entrusted to them. So much of this connection between heaven and earth happens in the context of the Moedim. So Moedim can literally be translated appointed meeting rather than appointed time. It carries the idea of meeting, right? Two things, meeting, uh, connecting. These are God's great connecting points in time and also to some degree in space. Since most of these are called holy convocations, we gather together physically for them, not to mention the fact that several are also called pilgrimage festivals when the whole country is gathering in one place. So they connect in both time and space. And so these vessels of connection that are so important for the priesthood must also be holy. They must be sanctified, set apart, and they must be clean and purified. Special offerings must be made on these days at the temple that work to sanctify the priesthood and the people and the days themselves and the elements of the temple service that are going to be used that day and connecting. So all must be put in order and prepared and cleansed as the people prepare to meet their God. And so these appointed times become occasions for great teaching as well the public reading forth of the Torah so that the people can hear it 
Remember, a lot of people couldn't read in those days, or maybe they didn't have access to a scroll. And the people can discuss with the teachers at these times also, especially in the, the pilgrimage festivals. Our only story of Yeshua as a young man is the story of how he was found in the temple at Passover, right? one of the three pilgrimage festivals, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And apparently he was doing some teaching of his own, See, you know, seeing that the teachers were amazed at Yeshua's understanding and his answers. Let's remember, too, that the hill upon which God chose to build the temple is called Moriah. And one translation of Moriah is, the Lord is my teacher, right, from Yorah, the same root as Torah, which means instruction. So God's house is to be a place of learning, a school. It's a schoolhouse, you know, and also a house. And the, the priests who run it are to be teachers, So we find this connection between this teaching function of the priests and the Moedim and the Haftarah reading for this portion from Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel is speaking about the priests in a future temple, probably the third temple. And the text says this, They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. Right, So that's the priestly function of teaching is mentioned there, and it goes on. In a dispute, they shall act as judges, and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed times, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. So again, here we have the priest portrayed as teachers, and in the very next verse, the priests are presented as those who keep God's appointed times, who watch over them and guard them. And so there's very much a connection between the appointed times and the priest's teaching. So let's go a little further into the idea of education now. The rabbis often connect the idea of education to this portion, and not only because of the emphasis on the priesthood and the Moedim, but also because of the title of the portion. The typical formula God uses when communicating his commandments is speak to the Israelites and say to them, so speak, the verb daber comes first and then amar, say, comes second. So here though, in this instance, we have amar twice, say to the Israelites and say to them, right? So this is not only unusual, but the title of the portion actually comes from one of these words for to say, amar, right? Amor. The Quixote Komish explains that the two Hebrew words translated speak and say carry different nuances. I mean, in English, they're almost identical. If we say speak this or speak maybe sounds a little bit more formal to us, but it's different. In Hebrew, they, they carry some extra meaning. There's a difference between the two. Speak connotes hard speech, which is straightforward and emphasizes accuracy and precision. Say, on the other hand, is soft speech, which is speech that tailors the message for the specific listener to make sure the communication is happening effectively. So with Amar, say, we translate say in English, 
you take more time to consider who your listener is and you adapt the message a bit to fit that audience. So you can see why this topic of education comes up here in this portion. God is emphasizing with his own speech to the priesthood this idea of soft speech, right? Say to the priests and say to the sons of Aaron and say to them, in our day, teachers are more and more understanding the great value in adapting the message for a particular class. Some master teachers will even give their students personality tests and they'll adjust their teaching style based on the result if a particular class leans pretty far in one direction or another. So to some degree, teachers in most schools are in a really tough position because we're putting 20 or 30 students together in one class. And there's only so much you can do in such a situation. But that's a topic for another time. Uh, but I want to share a few practical ideas from the Quixote Comish. Now, the Quixote Comish is a free downloadable commentary drawn from Rabbi Schneerson's teachings. And it's available on the Chabad website. And I'll put a link to that um, below the video here today, along with um, a link to an outline. So first, the commentary says that we are to be a kingdom of priests, right? All of us are priests to some degree. So we all have a responsibility to each other to educate each other. It goes so far, this commentary based on Rabbi Schneerson's works, uh, his teachings, it goes so far as to say that whenever we see in someone else a behavior or, or attitude that is in need of edification or correction, we are by divine providence being placed in the position of teacher. Now we have to be really careful you know, with this. We aren't to be generally going around correcting everybody, right? But if we keep this idea in mind that we are to be teachers for each other, we might have enough presence of mind to nudge this way or that way, even, you know, maybe without using words. And um, there are those situations where we might be able to actually bring a direct word that helps to guide someone toward a more balanced view. But on the receiving end of that, we, we also need to develop the kind of humility that can enable us to receive loving criticism. So beyond this application to Israel as a kingdom of priests, Rabbi Schneerson says that education in every context must be carried out primarily with soft speech. He says that we must be able to empathize fully with our charges, you know, our students, and tailor our style accordingly. And I find this interesting. Rabbi Schneerson says that the essential ingredient of effective education through soft speech is praising the student. The commentary continues, all our potential students possess infinite latent good. By praising the good, we draw these positive qualities out of them, thus allowing them to actualize their potential to a far greater extent than they could have done by themselves. So to be sure, this is the commentary still, when we assume the role of educator, we must be fully aware of the spiritual state of those whom divine providence has placed in our care, 
assessing their failings and shortcomings, honestly and objectively. So the commentary is saying, well, yeah, we have to be realistic about what we're seeing. And, you know, it doesn't always match up to the ideal. And it goes on, however, we must at the same time give them the benefit of the doubt, attributing their misdeeds to the circumstances of their lives. Judging them in this way does not absolve them from the guilt of having succumbed to temptation because God only places people in difficult situations if he has given them in advance the necessary strength of character to overcome such situations. So it's saying there, we're not absolving them. God wouldn't even give them that temptation if he didn't also give them the strength to come through that temptation successfully. And it goes on, if they fail to do so, it is because this God-given inner strength has not been allowed to manifest itself as it should. And the reason for that, for that is because we, who are responsible for educating our charges, have not praised them enough. Had we used our soft speech as much as we should have, we would have elicited our charges' latent potential and inner strength. All educators should thus assume personal responsibility for the moral failures of their charges, which is a pretty big thing to say. (laughs) What Rabbi Schneerson is saying, though, here, it's quite something. For one thing, he's saying that a teacher needs to know his charges well enough to be able to see past the flesh into the infinite spirit of the student. And when the teacher sees that, that bright light inside, that might be under some of the bad behaviors, if there are bad behaviors. So when the teacher sees that, he or she is to praise the student for the good that is there and the skill potential there. There's probably... I mean, this is probably the teacher's greatest mission as a teacher is to uncover the child's unique potential. Children need to be praised a lot for the good that God has put in them. The student can't really see this himself or herself. They just don't have enough experience in life or knowledge to be able to see themselves in that way. So this perceptive ability of the teacher and the teacher speaking forth what he or she sees is critical for the student to be able to bring those qualities forth. To some degree, the teacher needs to look past the moral fail- failures by giving the students the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, they, they have a tough family situation or um, they have a genetic predisposition, whatever. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Instead of focusing on those failures, focus on uncovering what God made them to be and praise them for what you see there. I think this is profound advice, not only for the teacher-student relationship, but for all of us and all of our relationships. We'd have a much better world if we operated this way. It's not that failure should go unpunished, as I said. It's just that we don't connect those failures to a person's core identity. We don't say this is a bad boy or that this is a good girl. We don't give them more weight than they deserve, you know, these times where they trip up. And even if we do need to punish, at the same time, we reach in to pull out the good locked up in a person 
if a person thinks they're only a mess up, they're going to behave that way, right? So imagine how our prison system would be different if we weren't just punishing, but we were also sending in people who were trained to look into prisoners and say, here are your special gifts that only you have. And this is what you need to bring to society, right? Imagine if we were focusing on that in our prisons. Well, let me just tack on here that the Moedim are a great opportunity for parents to teach their children, right? The Moedim are great opportunities for this teaching. The holidays are very memorable and impressionable times for kids, especially. They are special days set aside for not only interaction with God, but also interaction with the family. And this education at the Moedim is particularly a male role, an opportunity especially given to men and fathers who stand in the position of priest for the whole family. Fathers need to do the work of having the communication channels to God open, right? They need to be open this way. And they need to do the work of transmitting to their wives and children what they receive from God, right? So the channel needs to be open this way. Also, they stand in the middle between God and their families. So let's turn now to the second big topic in this portion, God's appointed times, or Moedim. Obviously, the Moedim are a key component of this whole spiritual seasons teaching series. And that's because God's appointed times, this yearly progression, they are one of the most important keys for unlocking all kinds of deeper insights into how God saves and how we grow in him. Truly, the calendar is a Rosetta Stone of sorts. Anciently, the tribe of Issachar was known to have many of Israel's greatest Torah scholars. We're not told much about their specific knowledge, except this one reference in 1 Chronicles, where it names, it's, what it's trying to do in that portion is name men who were sent from the different tribes to David at Hebron to make him king over all of Israel. And it says this, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command were sent to David. So here we're told that this tribe, known for their Torah scholarship, had understanding of the times. And this is understood to mean the calendar, the calendar. So there's a a lot of power here in the progression of the Moedim for understanding. And these days are not just, they're not just for the Jewish people. These aren't called Jewish holidays. The text calls them God's appointed times, the Moedim of of Adonai, of Yodhei, Vavhei. You know, so when we're talking with people who are not familiar with the Torah lifestyle, it's probably better to not say this is a Jewish holiday. It's probably better to say um, this is a biblical holiday. I don't know if that's offensive to you, though. Maybe you can't help but offend sometimes. Another foundation stone for approaching the Moedim is the understanding that these are not just days on which we are to remember historical events, right? We're not just remembering historical events. And they're not just agriculturally based either, like bringing first fruits and celebrating harvests. They do include these elements of, of remembering events and of these agricultural connections. 
The Moedim are appointments with God in the calendar. They are times to meet with him, times to both give to him and receive from him. Each of us prepares to meet God personally on these days. God not only wants to spend some time with us on the Moedim, but he also continues his work of salvation in us on these days, a deeper and deeper work. And, you know, of course, it's connected to the historical events as well. On Passover, he's doing a work of freedom in us. On Shavuot, he's doing a work of, of, of bringing the Torah to us on a new level. And so um, it goes way beyond just the historical. He's doing that same work in us now. And it's our choice. It's our choice as to whether or not we want to show up for these meetings with him. So in practical terms, how do we come to the meeting? How do we meet him? How do we show up? Well, we mentioned earlier that, these, um, that there are ways we can prepare, both mentally and practically, so that we can be ready. We can do the work of believing and anticipating God's work in us on these days, for one thing. One way we show up is to not work, if the Torah says to not work on that day. Another is to do what we can to observe the commandments related to these days, even if we don't have a temple. So many of these days are focused on the temple, but lacking a temple for thousands of years, those who follow God have developed ways to continue honoring and guarding the commandments related to the Moedim. Prayer replaces sacrifices, for example. We guard the commandments by doing what we can now. Another way we show up for these meetings is by taking at least a little time on these days to be quiet and listen, some time to pray on our own, some time to maybe think about our priorities and reassess and recenter ourselves and God. And we also make the days special, holy, through special food and our best clothing and public prayer. Regarding the food and clothing, we don't bring to God our second best. You know, we read in this very Torah portion about bringing God only our best for the sacrifices. These days should not be like every day. We make them special. So we have different ways to make them special, and that includes what we eat, what we wear. So if at all possible, take these days off of work. I mean, there are, there are exemptions for certain occupations like medical field occupations and police and fire, all of that. But if at all possible, take these days off of work. Maybe you have some vacation time saved up if, if you're blessed to have that kind of a job. What better way is there to use vacation time than for the Moedim? Like with the weekly Sabbath, one of the things we say to God through keeping these days holy is that we trust him above everything else for our provision. He is our provider, not our own hands, our own minds, our own abilities to make money. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells the Corinthians that they have everything. He says, you have everything. I think what he means is that as followers of God through the Messiah, we have everything that matters, everything that will survive the test of fire. So don't worry 
if you're not accumulating stuff as quickly as some others, if at all possible, take these days off and honor them according to the commandment. When we just blow through these days as if they don't exist, we're missing something foundational for life. In a sort of selfish sense, these days are a foundation stone for our spiritual well-being, and it is from our spiritual well-being that most of our physical well-being springs. But it's deeper than that. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik says that God actually infuses different times with certain characteristics, different personalities, almost like you could go through the 365 days and each one is a, is a different kid in a classroom. They're, they're just different. They're created differently. And he says, when we refer to a holy day, We do not merely mean to signify that it is a day in which man somehow experiences holiness. The day itself has an inner endowment, a charisma hidden in its very substance. And so we can spend that day doing what we normally do, or we can enter into the special charisma of that day, the unique personality of it each day being sanctified and imbued with a unique power to speak to us and and to um, encourage us. So this idea that God has specially imbued each day with its own character also includes the days that have been added to the list of revealed Moedim over time, including Hanukkah and Purim. It's God who originally created the uniqueness of these days. And fascinatingly, the rabbis have seen veiled references to both Hanukkah and Purim in the text of Emor. And the two topics that come after the seven annual Moedim in Leviticus 23. Chapter 24 starts with commandments regarding the menorah and specifically the oil for the menorah. This is an allusion to Hanukkah. It doesn't say the name Hanukkah there. That's a man-added Hanukkah to the calendar. But after all of the seven listed in Leviticus 23 comes this commandment regarding the menorah and the oil for the menorah. So um, part of the Hanukkah story is how one day's worth of oil for the temple menorah burned for eight days. And then the next topic after that one is the 12 loaves of bread that are to be replaced in the holy place every Shabbat. The rabbis say this bread, which, you know, in Exodus is called lechem panim, is a kind of backwards reference, a very veiled reference to the idea of God's hiddenness at Purim. And that's called hester panim. So there's a, there's a very veiled reference there in the bread to Purim. My general approach to Hanukkah and Purim is that God hid these special times in history for us to find. It is God who chose these days for special events to happen in the history of Israel, not the people, right? They didn't set up what would happen at Hanukkah or at Purim in the year. They weren't thinking that way. It's God who brought about those events at those times. And he delights that the bride recognized what he had hidden there and chose on her own to put in place for generations the free will offerings of these additional Moedim. 
in the end, these hidden Moedim are very much a part of the overall plan of salvation that God has built into the whole creation. So lastly, on this topic today, let's note that we find here in this portion the actual commandment regarding the counting of the Omer. This is where we learn about the Omer, counting the Omer. Of course, we are now in the midst of doing just this, counting seven sets of seven after Passover, seven weeks to Shavuot, which is the 50th day. Amor, the name of our Torah portion, sounds a lot like Omer, the two differing in the exchange of an Aleph and an Ayin. And at least this year, we are now crossing through the middle of the counting of the Omer as we are reading Emor. The Omer and Emor, I don't know if I can say that very many times, but the, the Omer and, em, and Emor have some kind of essential connection. This portion about communicating the word is at the center of the Omer. I think one deep connection is that God is communicating to us now during the Omer. It's about communication right now. It's about saying, here is what a holy person looks like. Examine yourself in relation to this. There's a lot of communication happening. There's much to say here, but we'll have to save it for another time. For now, I'd like to repeat a story that I heard Rabbi Raskin tell in connection to the Omer. It's a true story. Rabbi Raskin says that during the Omer, we are being enabled to rise from a low place to a higher place. And he connects to this idea a story from the time of the Altar Rebbe. Altar means old, older, the Elder Rebbe, one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's who lived in the 1800s in Lithuania and Russia. The Altar Rebbe was trying to bring uh, to buy a Jewish man out of prison, which was something you could do back then. So you can imagine that many would have been falsely imprisoned as a form of extortion. And one of the people, the altar Rebbe, asked for money to, to buy a Jewish man out of prison was Rav Gavriel. Rav Gavriel had been married for 25 years but had no children. He had done well in business but had recently lost his wealth. The Rebbe didn't know about the recent events that had befallen Rav Gavriel when he asked him for the money. He didn't know that Rav Gavriel didn't have any money. <laughs> and so Rav Gavriel felt very bad, but he couldn't do it. But when his wife, Hana Rivka, heard that the altar Rebbe requested this big amount for charity, she pawned her pearls and her diamonds, and she took the coins she got, and she sat down at the table and polished each one with sand. And as she was shining each one, she was praying that God would change their mazel, change what God had, the judgment that God had decided for them, and that her husband should start to make money, and God should bless them with children. She took all the shiny coins and wrapped them up in a beautiful bag, gave them to her husband who brought them to the Altar Rebbe. And when the Altar Rebbe saw these sparkling coins, he asked Rav Gavriel where he he gotten coins like that from. And Rav Gavriel explained his situation and how his wife had pawned her jewelry. The Altar Rebbe put his head in his hands for some time. Then he said to Rav Gavriel that Hashem was going to bless him with long years, with children, 
and with great wealth, and even blessed him that people would simply like him as a person. So soon afterwards, the Alter Rebbe asked him to move to another city where he became very wealthy. In fact, he sold jewelry, <laughs> right, which his wife had pawned. And he had sons and had daughters, and he lived until the age of 110, and his wife lived two years beyond him. And he was known as Rav Gavriel Nose Chen, Rav Gavriel, the one who had tremendous grace. And people liked him. So here was a woman and a couple who had great compassion on a fellow Jew in jail, and secondly, had great respect for their rabbi who requested a, a sum of money, and third, had the faith to see in this tragedy of imprisonment an, important, an opportunity for a great salvation, the faith that God would flip the evil and take them from a low place to a higher place. So they turned away from the stuff of this world, right? They pawned that jewelry, and they faced directly toward God. They risked their lives, in a way, their ability to buy food. To them, the blessing of God through the rabbi was more real than the coins themselves. We can't trust in those coins we can only trust in the blessing and the promises he gives us, that he is indeed lifting us up, and he will not stop until he gets the job done. And this woman not only believed, but she had the chutzpah to ask for a lot, right? Don't just give me children, but give us wealth, you know. Then literally put their money where their mouth was, what was left of their wealth, what they had to live on. And indeed, God raised them up. It's, it's a beautiful story. So speaking of the Omer, let's turn now to a specific focus on Yeshua in this discussion. I want us to think a bit about what Yeshua was doing after his resurrection. Everything he did after rising from the dead until his ascension happened during the counting of the Omer. And even after his ascension, the sending of the Spirit upon the disciples at Shavuot is also the fulfillment of a promise Yeshua gave to his disciples. It's all coming through Yeshua. So the Omer is a time for building step by step on a foundation that has just been elevated and in a way kind of wiped clean, reset. There's a kind of passing away of one life in the beginning of another happening. Passover especially is a time of rebirth to a new situation, a new phase of our journey, a new year. Passover is a time of death and resurrection, as it was for Yeshua. And so it's that way for us too. And so for that small group of believers, that Passover was a dying time. As their rabbi hung on the tree, they doubted their understanding of God's plan and they would have naturally doubted their experience of walking with Yeshua. And they're kind of wondering, what was that all about for those three years? They said that they had hoped he was the Messiah, but he was put to death. So how could they not be devastated? How could they not doubt? And so the hope and the cords that had bound them together had come unraveled. And there was a kind of scattering of the flock, a separation 
and separation is death, right? So what happened in the flock at Passover was a dying. Well, what happens afterwards is a study in starting again at a higher level. During the Omer, Yeshua, one, puts the flock back together, two, opens their minds to a deeper truth, three, gives them their mission in this world, and four, he empowers them to do it. It's a remarkable sequence of events. This is what it looks like to ascend to a higher level with God through Yeshua. So first, Yeshua appears to his followers. They doubt that it's him. He sees their need for tangible proof, right? They're in a kind of childlike state. They're in a state of having been reborn. And he sees that they need tangible proof. And he gives them what they need in that moment. And he gently reproves them. But he says, here, look at these scars. And they believe. In the case of Thomas, Yeshua even allows him to touch his scars. So doubting Thomas is the only one Yeshua invites to come that close to him. Yeshua knows that they are like newborn babes in a new world, a different reality. When he rose from the grave, the old world passed away. And so he doesn't deny them the tangible evidence they need. He gives it to them, though he also says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Yeshua would go on to empower them by opening up the scriptures to them, as it says at the end of Luke, that Yeshua not only opened the minds of the two on the road to Emmaus, but he did the same for all of them when he appears among them. He opens their minds to the scriptures. And he also gave them a mission, the gift of knowing why you're here in this world. Isn't it great to know why you're here in this world? So that's a gift he gives them. And that mission is to go out and to take the good news to the whole world. And he has a special commission for one of them who also needed a little healing, Peter, who had denied him three times. Yeshua graciously and wisely allows Peter to profess his love for him three times and each time undoing one of those denials. And each time, Yeshua gives Peter a special three-step mission. Feed my, lamb, sorry, feed my little lambs. The Greek word is little lamb. Feed my little lambs. One, tend my sheep. Two, and feed my sheep. Three. So I think in that moment, he's taking Peter from this low place of shame and the guilt that separates And he's removing that guilt, but also raising Peter up to be the first leader of the believing community, making him the shepherd who will lead while the flock is young like lambs, and the leader who will continue to shepherd through persecutions, right? Tend my sheep. And the leader who will feed the sheep as they begin to require adult food, feed my sheep. So Yeshua is providing a leader for the flock. He's making a thorough provision for the young body as they begin a new life, everything they will need. And this provision includes the sending of the Holy Spirit, which involves him first breathing on them before he ascends, and then later the sending of the Spirit at Shavuot. 
So the first, the breathing on them, apparently seems to transmit a kind of authority onto them. And the second comes with the power, right, at Shavuot, comes with the power they will need to speak forth the word effectively and with miraculous signs to help people believe their message. So my main point here in looking at what Yeshua did during the Omer period is, well, first of all, he's raising them up to a new level. And secondly, it's that God will provide what we need to walk at a higher level. He does so through Yeshua. We will lack nothing that we need. Trust him in this as we step off onto a new path together. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. There's a link to an outline of this teaching posted below, and I'll also put a link to the Kihot Komish there. May God bless us to be people who long for and who attain holiness. May we grab hold of our charge to be a kingdom of priests. May we find life in the Moedim. May he bless us in this period of the counting of the Omer with faith that he has fully prepared us for a new level of service. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.